All right, we're going to be looking at verses 1 to 11 in uh, chapter 33. God's word says this. The Lord said to Moses, depart, go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt to the land of which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying to your offspring, I will give it. I will send an angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey. Hear this right here. But I will not go up among you, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. When the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned. And no one put on his ornaments, for the Lord had said to Moses, Say to the people of Israel, You are a stiff-necked people. If for a single moment I should go up among you, I would consume you. So now take off your ornaments that I may know what to do with you. Therefore, the people of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments from Mount Oreb onward. In verse 7, Now Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp, far off from the camp, And he called it the tent of meeting. And everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. Whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people would rise up and each would stand at his tent door and watch Moses until he had gone into the tent. When Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent and the Lord would speak with Moses. And when all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people would rise up and worship, each at his tent door. Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. When Moses turned again into the camp, his assistant Joshua, son of Nun, a young man, would not depart from the tent. This is the word of the Lord. Today we close out our our journey through Exodus. If you recall, last week we were in the scene of of Exodus where the Israelites have crafted a a golden calf or an idol that they worshipped in the place of God. The chasm between God and the Israelites appeared in, in that chapter to be remedied by Moses. But it has become clear that, that this is not the, the case as we journey through chapter 33 now. God is faithful to his promise, which was to bring the Israelites to the promised land. He will uphold this, but it comes at the expense of his presence not being with them. He noted that in that passage, his presence not being with them. It seems as though, reading through this passage, that a a test of faith is in order. A test of faith is in order order. And and you may be questioning, does does God really test our faith? Yes, he does. And that is a good thing that he tests our faith because what a fearful thing it would be to stand under the judgment of God because he never tested the genuineness of your faith in this present life. And so we thank God that he tests our faith. The passage begs of this question, our main idea. You're going to hear this question a lot. Do you really want God? Do you really want God? Exodus 33, 3-4 says this, Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go up among you, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. What is the response then of the people? When the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned, and no one put on 
his ornaments. Do you really want God? Note in the passage that God not only tells the Israelites that he will no longer be with them in the promised land, but also he immediately, the, immediately the, the tent of meeting is noted in the next section that it was moved outside of the camp. So the presence of God is now outside of the people. The tent of meeting is the precursor to the, what we know as the tabernacle, a place where Moses would meet with God. And notice the relationship in verse 11 between God and Moses. It says this, Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. Do you see the friendship that Moses has with God? But this dwelling presence has moved away from the Israelites. They mourn then at the prospect of not having God with them. The question remains, do you really want God? Do you really want God? When the reality of receiving the promised land without God hits the ears of the Israelites, they mourn and weep. They remove their their adornments, their, their jewelry, their ornaments. They are devastated by the prospect of moving forward without God. Do you really want God? Over the past few months, shifting our focus now to Moses, it's been a, I think it's been a joy to witness uh, the sanctification of Moses, the growth in his, his holiness, his, his relationship with, with God. He was the one who took the life of, of an Egyptian, if you remember early on in our, in our journey in Exodus in which he hid from the consequences. He was the one who fled out into the wilderness, the one who trembled before God at the burning bush, the one who doubted God's calling on his life, the one who questioned God when the labor became toilsome under Egyptian oppression. And yet here we witness this, the boldness of God's chosen servant as he models for us intercession or intervention. That Moses is noted here as a friend of, of God. That's amazing. A friend of God. And so it brings us to our first point, the intervention of Moses. The intervention of Moses, looking now to verses 12 to 16. It says, Moses said to the Lord, see you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. In a sense, Moses is questioning God here. Now, therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways, that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. I want to pause there for a second. Look in your notes back to verse 1. Or look in your Bibles back to verse 1. It says, The Lord said to Moses, Depart, go up from here, you and, notice this language, the people. Do you see how God is no longer identifying this as his people, but the people? But here Moses, now the friend of God, says this, Consider too that this nation is your people. Verse 14, and he said, This is God speaking now. My presence will go with you, and I will give you rest, directed towards Moses. Verse 15, and he said to him, this is Moses now responding, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. Do you see how Moses is identifying himself with the Israelites? Even though God just said, I will go with you, 
Moses is making the connection that if, if that doesn't include everybody, then you, you're, this whole section of people is alienated. They are separated away. Moses is so closely identified with his people. Verse 16, for how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I, what, and your people? Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, he says it again, from every other people on the face of the earth? We see here the intervention of Moses. Moses identifying with his people so closely so linked together with them. And the intervention of Moses involves three requests of God that we see in this passage. We're going to look at the first two here in this section, and then in the next point we'll visit the third request of Moses. Moses first calls on God. He says, show me now your ways. Show me now your ways, O Lord. Get the picture. Moses is with God in the tent of meeting, And the previous text emphasizes that that Moses spoke to God face to face. Now, I want to pause there for a second because there would be some confusion as we travel later on in this passage when Moses hides or when God hides Moses from his face. So how can he speak to God face to face and survive? The the language does not literally mean that he's face to face with God. God's holiness would just destroy him. Because in the next scene, God will protect Moses from seeing his face. Rather, it infers to the relationship that Moses has with God. Because of the faith and obedience of Moses, he is considered this. It says, a friend of God. Because of faith and obedience, Moses is considered a friend of God. Moses then, in this relationship that he has with God, calls upon the Lord to show him his way. Show me your ways, O Lord. Moses knows God. He's seen God work. He's seen God deliver his people. He knows God. He knows this about God. He knows that he is gracious, that he is loving, that he holds fast to his word and his promise. He's a covenant-keeping God. He's a forgiving God. Even in the fear of his holy presence, Moses has confidence to ask these things of God, to declare, show me, O Lord, that you will indeed never leave us nor forsake us. Show us your ways, O Lord. He then asks God to journey with them. God responds to Moses that he will go with him, that is Moses, But Moses begs of God to consider this nation, his people as well. And Moses makes a decisive statement. If your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. Do you see, church, the pleading heart of Moses on behalf of his people? He's pleading and intervening and interceding on behalf of his people. We have to, church, see the connection to Jesus in this passage. We have to see Jesus pleading on behalf of his people before the Father. We have to see Jesus in this mediating work of Moses, this interceding work of Moses, this intervening work of Moses. And let me be clear, because sometimes we can look at the Old Testament and say, angry God. We look at the New Testament, we say, happy God. That's not the case. This isn't the tale of two gods. 
An angry God in the Old Testament and a loving God in the New Testament. This is, I want to be clear, this is the one true God in which his word declares this, that he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. God does not change. And because Jesus is God, we cannot say that he is different than the God presented in the Old Testament. Because Jesus, in his loving mercy and grace, his word tells us that he manifests who God truly is. Do you want to know what God is like? Look at Jesus. Jesus, we've been declaring this truth almost every week. Jesus intercedes and intervenes in a better way than Moses. The author of Hebrews says that Jesus is the better Moses. Jesus is the greater Moses. And this is why. Because he doesn't plead with God on the basis of of the blood of bulls and goats. He doesn't plead with God in hopes that another better sacrifice will come in the future. Rather, Jesus pleads with God on behalf of his people by his own perfect blood, by his own sacrifice, in his great love for those who he has saved through his perfect life, death, and resurrection. And, and, and I send out this, this warning in love. If you are here and you are not under this mediator, this interceder, this, this intervener, then you do this. You plead with God on your own account, and that is a dreadful place to be in. You plead with God on your own works, bringing your own righteousness. And here is the truth. And, and this is one of the scandalous parts of the gospel. This is the offense of the gospel to us because we think a lot more highly of ourselves than we, than we ought to. This is the truth. If you bring your own righteousness before God, you don't measure up. You don't fit the bill. You fall short of the glory of God. And so I beg of you this morning, we're going to have a gospel plea here this morning. I beg of you this morning, cry out to Jesus and he will save you. The Bible says everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. You need the better Moses in your life. Back to the story. Point number two, we see now the response of God. Point number two, we see the response of God. Exodus 33, 17 to 23 says this, And the Lord said to Moses, This very thing that you have spoken I will do, for you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Moses said, Please, Show me your glory. And he said, that is God, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But, he said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock, and my glory passes, and while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock, 
And I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. God is so gracious and merciful. The Israelites, if we pull ourselves back out in the context, the Israelites have just been caught red-handed in sin and idolatry. They've been caught with their hand in the cookie jar. They made and worshipped an idol, attributing the great blessings of God to something they created with their own hands. And in that, God has every right to disown them. They don't deserve the mercy and grace of God. They deserve all that God is is saying He will do, which is to remove His, His presence from them. But then he says at the request and intervention of Moses, this very thing that you have spoke I will do. For you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. And at this, this is why we know that Moses is a changed man for the better. Moses makes then a third request of God. I mean, what what an amazing request. After all that, show me now your glory, God. Show me your glory. To which God then responds, not by showing him his glory, but God says, I'll let you see my goodness pass by you, and I'm going to tell you my name. My goodness will pass by you, and you will know my name. This is the name of God, the Lord. And with that, he says, I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. Mercy. It is in this moment that God protects Moses from his own request. Moses will get a glimpse of the goodness of God, but he can't take the whole thing. He can't take the full weight of God's glory at this point. Because God's too good. He will tuck Moses away in the rock so that the Lord will pass by, protecting Moses with his hand and offering him just a glimpse of his goodness. In chapter 34, we get a little bit more uh, understanding in the, in the name of God. Exodus 34, 5 to 9, if you look to your notes of the screens, it says, The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Amen? And then he says this, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation? And Moses, this is Moses' response to the goodness and the name of God, the word of God. Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. He responded to God in worship. And he said, If now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us, for it is a stiff-necked people. And then he says this, And pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us for your inheritance. Moses, in the grace of God, has through his pleading and intervention satisfied the righteous anger and wrath of the Lord. He has turned God's anger into God's delight for his people. The Lord will be with them. 
And the response is detailed in the remaining chapters. We're not going to read all the way through chapter 34 to 40. I'm going to summarize it for you. This is what occurs at at the reinstatement of the Israelites. God revisits the covenant. If you remember last week, what did Moses do when he discovered that the people were were worshiping a, a false god? He broke the tablets of the law. Really, it symbolized that, that, that God's people had broken their covenant with God. So Moses had broken the covenant tablets because the Israelites had broken their covenant with God. God commands then Moses now in response to cut new tablets and bring them to him. Moses obeys. And then in the text, God highlights again that they shall not have any other gods before him. He's made that very clear to them. And then he emphasizes in those chapters rules that will safeguard them from interacting and being sucked into their old way of life to keep them pure from foreign influence, from pagan influence, as they had slipped back into paganism in the Golden Calf episode. It is here now within the text that that the people's contributions then are are physically brought forth. We talked about this a few weeks ago, the tabernacle and the priestly garments. In 35 to 40, uh, those details are, are listed out on how they built those and crafted the garments. It's a fitting place in the story. The, the instructions were known before, but sin had overcome God's people. God in his grace forgives his people because of the intervention of Moses pointing to Jesus, and his covenant is renewed, and the tabernacle and garments are crafted as a response to the Lord's goodness. It's important to note, if you've read through these chapters, that Moses was in this time in such close proximity to the Lord, remitting instructions and interacting with God. What happened when he came back down? His face was shining and glowing. Moses had a holy sunburn, right? And so the Exodus story concludes with a, with a beautiful picture of God's filling of the tabernacle at the end of 40. It brings us to our third point, the glory of God. The glory of God. But we'll look first at a promise from God in Exodus 34.10. says this, the Lord says this, Behold, I am making a covenant before all your people. I will do marvels such as have not been created in all the earth or in any nation, and all the people among whom you are shall see the work of the Lord. Hear this, for it is an awesome thing that I will do with you. What a beautiful promise. This powerful promise culminates in in this specific instance with the glory of God then descending and filling the tabernacle after they build this tent. And so we close Exodus reading, This beautiful ending, Exodus 40, 34 to 38. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out until the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day and fire in it by night in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. What a beautiful scene. God's presence is back with his people, guiding them and protecting them near 
to them. Church, here's the bottom line as we conclude with Exodus. This is our story. This is our story. And oftentimes, when we read Scripture like this, we long to, within ourselves, be the hero of the story. We long to be Moses in the story. I love uh, watching movies, and, and some of my favorite movies to watch are war movies. Do we have war movie fans in here? I love a good war movie. I often, when I watch war movies, you know, place myself in the, in the position of, of the hero. One of my favorite movies is a movie called Saving Private Ryan. You guys remember that movie, Saving Private Ryan? When I watch that, I definitely cast myself as Tom Hanks, who plays Captain Miller uh, within that movie. Captain Miller is bold. He's brave. He's the mysterious main character. No one knows what he does, what his occupation is back in the United States. And so I, I play along as Captain Miller. But, there, but in reality, there's another interesting character in that movie. Kind of a squirrely little guy from... From behind the scenes. His name is Timothy Oppum. Do you guys remember Oppum in that movie? You probably don't because he's not a memorable character. Oppum is recruited from behind the main lines as a translator. He's a translator. When, when Captain Miller comes to Oppum, he finds Oppum back with all of the administrative workers, back there with his typewriter and a pencil. And he, and he comes to Oppen because he needs a translator to help him translate out in the field with this kind of ragtag group of guys that he's chosen to go out and rescue and save Private Ryan. Here's the problem with Oppen. Oppen has no war experience. Uh, when he gets out in the battlefield, he's, he's quick to duck away in combat. And Oppen makes a ton of errors throughout the movie that endangers the squad searching for Private Ryan. And so as, as much as I want to be Captain Miller, I'm not. I'm Oppum at every turn, questioning the captain, nerve-filled, shaking, trembling, making numerous errors. I'm Oppum. I'm not the hero of the story. Connecting this back to Moses in this story, as difficult as this is to hear, we want to cast ourselves as Moses in the story. But we're not. We're the people at the bottom of the hill trembling that Moses is intervening on behalf of. You want to know why we're not Moses? Because Moses is a type and shadow of the Messiah, Jesus Christ. We don't get to play that role. We do this in the parables. We, we look at the parables and we say, we're that guy. We're the one in the parable of the Good Samaritan. We're the Samaritan coming and helping people along when in reality we're the guy that's a heap of rubble on the side of the road. We don't get to play the hero. We don't get to play that role. Rather, we do this. We lean into the intervention that only Jesus can give us. There's a, there's a part in Saving Private Ryan where Oppum is so terrified that he, he keeps scooting back and back in this bunker until he's in the arms of kind of another guy, safe and secure. That's what we do in Jesus. We're trembling and we're scared and we're, we're sink, sinking back into the arms of our Savior at every single turn. 
leaning into Jesus, leaning into the intervention that only Jesus can give us. This church is our story. And our story goes like this. I want to share the gospel with you this morning. We were all enslaved. Not physically, but to sin. And God in his goodness delivered us through his chosen servant. Except this chosen servant that he chose to deliver us through is perfect. This chosen servant is fully man and fully God. This chosen servant was born of the Virgin Mary, conceived by the Holy Spirit. Upon his baptism, the heavens opened up. The language there is that they tore open. And the Spirit descended on him like a dove. And the Father declared of this servant, This is my Son, in whom I am well pleased. And his chosen servant was tempted and tested. And Scripture tells us this. He was without sin. And his own people rejected him, the ones he came to save. On the eve of his death, he knew the weight of what was upon him. Why? Because it was planned from all of eternity that God would glorify himself through the humiliation of himself on the cross. And Jesus cried out, Take this cup from me. Then he said, But Father... Not my will, but your will be done. You see, Jesus not only fulfilled the law, but perfectly obeyed the eternal, redemptive plan of God. Spotless and perfect, he went to the cross and Jesus died on the cross. But on that third day, Jesus rose, he resurrected from the dead in victory over sin and death. And Jesus ascended to heaven where he is ruling and reigning. And church, for those of you who are in Christ, for those of you who may be in unbelief, he's calling out to you. In the enslavement of your sin, in the midst of your rebellion, and he's saying, these words come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Question, do you really want God? Do you really want God or do you just want his blessings? When the Israelites were confronted with that idea, they mourned. When they were confronted that God would not be with them, they mourned and they wept and they ripped their jewelry off. Do you really want God or are you going to run back to your old ways at the first sign of trouble and distance from him? Jesus gives us a dose of truth. I love John 14. Here's the reality. I mean, we had a troubling week this last week, didn't we? We've seen the people that bear our flag die. We've seen tear and unrest in the Middle East. In all likelihood, much of the church has been martyred in Afghanistan. We've seen a terrible disease continue to rip through our land and our nation. We've become more and more divided. But 
Only Jesus says this in John 14. Jesus tells us this as we argue and fuss with each other. Jesus says this, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. And then he declares this truth. Jesus is the only name by which we can be saved. He says this. Okay, I'm going to pause. When people say Jesus was just a good teacher, he wasn't. Because if this is not true, he's the greatest liar ever in the history of humanity. Jesus says these words because he is the Messiah. He is the Savior. He is the way to reconciliation with the Father. Jesus says this, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Does that sound like a lot of paths? No. It sounds like the Savior of the world saying the most loving thing that he could say. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I'm not beating around the bush. You need Jesus. No one comes to the Father except through me. He says this, If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him, and you have seen him, because Jesus is God in the flesh. Do you remember back in Exodus 34, 10, the Lord promised that he would do an awesome thing with Israel. What was that awesome thing that he gave us? He gave us a Savior, Jesus Christ who came out of that chosen people, true Israel. Jesus came to save the lost and to redeem a people to himself. And he did this all for the glory of the Father. And so I call upon you very clearly this morning, if you are not in Jesus, repent and believe in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins and the restoration of your soul. And you are joined into the kingdom of God. Repent and believe in Jesus. I want to invite the band to come forward as we shift and look to examine